May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. The book of Ruth opens on quite a foreboding note. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. The time of the judges in Israel was a chaotic one. Israel was in a state of disarray. As Judges itself notes, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. In such a time, we might be surprised to find that scripture has space for a story like Ruth. It's just four short chapters. Things are messy and dangerous. And yet it's against that backdrop of Israel's national struggle that we get this little story of Naomi and Ruth and Boaz. And it's told in the way that my former Old Testament professor used to describe it. It is the still small voice of the biblical canon. After the fire and the fury of what you get in Judges, we're given this little tidy domestic tale about a husband and a wife, their sons and daughters-in-law, and what happens after all of our good plans come to nothing. It's a great little story. It's short enough that you could actually go home and read the whole thing yourself if you were feeling inspired. In one sitting, And it is very ordinary in its presentation. God appears in Ruth at the edges of the action, which has the effect for me of making it feel a little bit like watching a BBC family drama, especially when compared to the blockbuster set pieces you get and the high body count found in Judges. But but in this story, we see the faithfulness of God working in difficult circumstances in the life of one family, and through that family, blessing the whole world. It is a still small voice that we hear in this story, but it is the voice of the Lord all the same. So the time is, as we noted, the time when the judges are judging. And on top of that, there's a famine. Now, the famine must have been quite severe if it's felt even in Bethlehem, because Bethlehem is traditionally the breadbasket of Israel. That's what Bethlehem means, house of bread. And the hunger drives Naomi and her husband and their sons out of the promised land to the country of Moab, a godless place that corresponds roughly to modern-day Jordan. And there, Naomi's life is changed almost only for the worse. First, her husband dies, leaving her a widow far from home. And then her sons marry foreign Moabite women. Now, the death of a husband is a loss, but marriages to non-Israelite women are a scandal. No matter the difficult circumstances Naomi might have been in, this would not have been something that would have been done. Moabites were not well thought of. In Moses' farewell address, he says to Israel, No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever, because they did not meet you with bread and with water on the way when you came out of Egypt. So there is this ancient enmity that exists between these people. And that injunction, while it's distant, 
would not have been wholly forgotten by Naomi or any other Israelite. But then, after that, things go from bad to worse. Both of her sons, who, if you believe in nominative determinism, uh, that is, if you think their names mean something about what's going to happen to them, uh, their names translate roughly to sickness and end of the line. Um, So both her sons die suddenly. And Naomi is left with no husband and no sons and not very many prospects that things are going to turn out well at all. In those ancient days, of course, a widowed woman in a far foreign country on her own was a vulnerable target. But Naomi is not completely without hope. She hears that there was now food in Israel, so she prepared to return home to go back to Bethlehem. And this turning back seems like a hard pill to swallow because Naomi will have to admit defeat, that she has been beaten. After losing so much in Moab, she'll now have to limp home with whatever she can carry. But she will not take her daughters-in-law with her. They're not very far into the journey when the older woman attempts to send them back to their homes to release Orpah and Ruth from any obligation they might feel to her as family members. Naomi has turned back herself already, setting her face for the trip, and she turns her trailing companions around as well. She wants to let these two younger women go back to their own people and to their own families to see if they can start life over again and find some little shred of happiness. These young women have been a blessing to her and to her sons, but Naomi is willing to let them go without any ill will. She has nothing more to give them. She cannot secure a good future on their behalf. As she notes, she has no more sons, so she releases them and wishes that God will bless them somehow, despite the fact that she herself cannot. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you find rest, each of you, in the house of your husband. Naomi hereby dissolved whatever kind of formal responsibility the two young women might have felt to her as their mother-in-law. And when they protest, she insists. Naomi describes what has happened as if the hand of the Lord himself has been raised against her, as if she and her family are under some kind of curse that has followed them to this foreign land. It is exceedingly bitter for me, for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. So Naomi makes this case for why Orpah and Ruth might be right just to leave her behind, to spare themselves the pain that might come from accompanying her back to her own country. Naomi says that they should turn back and to see if in that returning they can find some way to minimize the risk that comes from being with their mother-in-law. Turning back happens a couple of times here in the early part of Ruth. Some things have to be left behind so that a good future can come in. We know this in our own lives. But for Ruth and for Naomi and for Orpah, it cannot actually be sure that if they leave their past behind, things are going to work out the way they might hope. And that's often true for us as well. What can we do but throw ourselves on the mercy of God? It certainly would have drawn attention to have these three foreign women 
two foreign women and one uh, long-lost Israelite come back to Bethlehem together, and Naomi has become, as she says, bitter. She's turned away from Moab and from happiness. There's no guarantee there's going to be a good resolution to this story. How often do you and I feel like it might just be easier to turn back or give up on some endeavor or project? It's often hard to know which way we're supposed to go. And while we ask for wisdom, there are not always easy answers. So when Orpah turns back to go home, we cannot actually blame her. She's exhausted every plea she can. And when Naomi insists, she does the sensible thing. She's not wrong to do so. This is the normal, expected human response. Ruth proves harder to dislodge. She sticks with Naomi. In biblical language, we might say that Ruth cleaves to her. She won't go back either to her people or to her gods, but insists that she will remain by Naomi's side. She does the extraordinary thing. She goes above and beyond and swears that she will be devoted to Naomi no matter what might happen. And when Naomi makes this attempt to send her daughters-in-law away, she's trying to give them blessings from God, providing them a way out and let them feel as if they can walk away guilt-free. But Ruth just refuses. In essence, she says that she and Naomi are already bound to one another in a way that cannot be easily dissolved that they will share a people and a God, and there is no chance that she will let them be separated after the tragedies that they have been through. This is the life that she chooses, and she is willing to endure it. So Naomi relents, and the two of them journey from Moab to Jerusalem together to see what this new life might bring under vastly different circumstances than before. Now, the book of Ruth, of course, goes on because the story doesn't just end with the two women walking off into the sunset. There will be more drama to follow and the question of how Naomi's bitterness will be taken away and Israel itself brought back into good order has to be resolved. But it is the kindness and the selflessness that Ruth displays that are the overarching and abiding themes of the book. Ruth becomes a channel of covenantal blessing because she embodies the faithfulness that God shows his people and wants to receive from them in return. Ruth is the embodiment of a theme that we see throughout scripture captured in the Hebrew word hesed. This is the generous ability to put the interests of another weaker party before your own. This book is the concept of hesed rendered in a narrative. This is the quality of good faith that human beings are meant to share with God. This is, of course, the aspect of God's character that the people of Israel believed to be a quality of the Lord himself. Uniquely in the ancient world, the Israelites believed that God actually intended to deal fairly with his people that God is not capricious or calculating, but abides in steadfast love and abounds in mercy. This faithfulness that Israel believed God possessed is shown by giving good faith towards others. And it was intended to be a personal quality of those who followed the Lord. 
So when Ruth pledges herself to Naomi, she shows the kind of kindness and humility that we believe God shows us. Not just basic decency and toleration, but a depth of personal investment in the thriving of another. And this from a foreign woman who probably did not know the Lord before marrying into this family. She is steadfast and faithful and committed to showing love in the same way that God does. This generous ability to give of herself to a weaker party like Naomi with no guarantee of a return, with no guarantee that her contribution will be rewarded or justified, shows us the way forward. Ruth does not do it because she wants to be part of some kind of underdog story and she's excited to see how it's going to go. Or because she senses in Naomi the possibility of a good future. Ruth goes with Naomi because she is determined to see this thing through, no matter how it might finish up. Whether she knows what she has pledged herself to or not, God honors her sacrifice and her commitment, and she becomes a channel of blessing for the whole world. That commitment bears fruit. The last word in the book of Ruth is about her ancestor, David. And eventually, of course, she appears in the genealogy of Jesus himself. This Moabite woman, who is stubborn and clever and sticks by her mother-in-law, is an ancestor of the Messiah. Faithful, but far down the social ladder, she practices the virtues that are characteristic of the Lord God Almighty himself. And what follows is the flourishing of the whole world. This fidelity that she shows goes above and beyond what is reasonable or expected, just as God sticks with us when we ourselves seem to be wandering, just as we stick with one another when we have lost the way. Ruth doesn't just meet expectations. She doesn't just do the bare minimum she needs to do to get by. She exceeds them. And her love is so strong that she becomes a model of faithfulness for God's people, despite the fact that she is a member of a foreign tribe. It's a reminder for us that faithfulness bears fruit, no matter where it might originate. In this, we are taught that if we wish to be followers of the Lord, we cannot just be garden-variety, decent people, but because we believe in the extravagant goodness of the God who pours himself out for others, we have to be willing to practice that same kind of stubborn, devoted faithfulness. Not just acting as individuals, but as part of a community geared towards that kind of goodness. Selflessness and service, combined with that stubborn commitment to see things through to the very end, Make Ruth a model that we can all learn from. And this little book shows us that those qualities in individuals lead to flourishing and lively communities. We were not created to live alone, but in relationships of mutual care and support for one another. We need each other not just for sentimental reasons, but to survive. The moral ecology of the world functions properly when God and humanity are engaged in the perpetual exchange of these acts of hesed, 
of good faith and the love that flows from them. The challenge presented to you and I as followers of the same God, the God who practices good faith with us, is to model that kind of extravagant, sacrificial humility in our own lives, in our relationships with others, in how we order our households, in how we deal with strangers. We are taught to be people ready and willing to go the extra mile, to do the unexpectedly self-sacrificial thing just for the simple reason that we are imitating the Lord, the one who let himself become an offering for our sake and who thereby can turn our lives, if we offer them like Ruth, into sources of abundant blessing for others. Thanks be to God. Amen.